Hello, my name is Raj Mehta and welcome to Richard Lehman discusses EBM. How are you today, Richard? I'm uh, top of the world, actually, because I'm uh, in America at the moment um, at Yale Medical School um, in, in a guest room uh, and having a great time reliving um, a very happy year that I spent here some time ago. Uh, and today we're going to talk about high blood pressure, I think. Um, and there could not be a better spot to talk about that from, as I will explain in a moment. Well, welcome back to the States, Richard. I'm delighted to have you in the same time zone as me for a change. And I think this will be a great discussion because hypertension is at the core of primary care, the problem that we see most often dealing with managing blood pressure. And there's much to discuss here from an EBM perspective. Yes, and I think it, it um, is once again a good topic to highlight the shortcomings of EBM as well as its triumphs. Um, and that's due to the very nature of the condition. It's also a very good condition to talk about in terms of population statistics and the decisions that have to be made between individuals um, and their doctors. Uh, so um, I'm sure we'll range widely, but where do you want me to start? I think a good place to start is just defining what hypertension is or what high blood pressure is, because I think this gets to the crux of the matter. It, it seems to live in this weird area where it's a disease and it's a risk factor, and that tends to create a dilemma for us. And it's very unique in that way. There aren't many measurements or, or, or illnesses that kind of do that uh, in the way high blood pressure does. No, we've talked about uh, type 2 diabetes, and that's a biochemical threshold. Here we're talking about a mechanical threshold uh, or a series of possible mechanical thresholds, depending on which you go for, you know, whether it's diastolic, systolic, the difference between the two, which is the pulse pressure, the variability, and so on. Um, and then how you um, marshal all the evidence that's accumulated over the years during which high blood pressure has been defined and measured in different ways. Um, how do you use that to um, decide on the treatment of a particular individual in front of you, uh, or indeed decide on the direction of the whole study of high blood pressure and what we do with it? So we could, as I say, range endlessly in these different directions, but um, let's, let's just go back down to the basic, how do you define it, as you said. Uh, how would you define it, Raj? What would, you, what would your criteria be? Well, generally, we use a blood pressure cuff to measure someone's blood pressure. Then if I have multiple readings, and hopefully these are accurate measurements, that are high, if they're, particularly if they're above the 140 over 90 threshold, then I will tend to diagnose someone with hypertension. And of course, the higher that number is, or the more risk factors they have, the more worried I am, and the more aggressive I might be trying to bring that down. Okay, so you're the aggressor here. Um, the patient sits there having the blood pressure taken and being told they have this condition called hypertension, which immediately makes them <laughs> hypertense. And um, so you're on a loser there because the blood pressure is going to go up unless you do something now. Um, and you've got a large choice of different drugs to use, all of which 
uh, have their advantages and their possible harms. Uh, and as you say, there are a lot of other factors that are going to influence how long these people live and what diseases they're going to get. So you're all, you're in quite um, uh, difficult territory already, even though you've just done a simple measurement a few times. <laughs> Indeed. So how do we how do we get out of this difficulty? Well, the sim the simplest way of getting out of a difficulty is to pretend it doesn't exist. And um, therefore, you go to a guideline, you say, look here, patient, um, you may feel completely well, but you're at risk of all these terrible things happening to you. And I'm going to save you from them by giving you these pills, which unfortunately is uh, kidding yourself and lying to the patient. So that's, <laughs> so that's not a, not a good good start, really. Um, and yet, it's what, what's the alternative? Do you, do you start giving them a long lecture about how risk factors may or may not affect them and how everybody's slightly in disagreement and all the guidelines say something slightly different and begin in all sorts of different places, but you can't give them a choice because it's really potluck. And I, you know, uh, sorry. The, the, so what? What is incredibly simple becomes, uh, as I said, um, really a minefield. It's almost an ethical minefield because do you, do you just go for a simple approach, or do you try to do all this difficult stuff? You, you know, sometimes with high blood pressure, it's in some ways it's almost easier because I can say, look, here's this number, and we both agree it's too high. And you can see that, and we should bring it lower because lower is better than being higher. And here's a pill that can do that. And so that, I think for a lot of patients, you know, the mechanical nature of that, seeing that being high and being told, okay, we should bring that down. It almost seems like self-evident. Oh, oh, of course we should do that. Or, you know, no, I don't really want to take a pill, but I recognize that's high and that's not good for my health. And and we kind of have just dumped all the nuance out of that. We just we just assume, oh, this is high, that's bad, lower is better. But uh, the reality is that there's a whole philosophical underpinning that just goes undiscussed many times. And it's kind of up to me as a provider when I need to bring that nuance into the picture and when I can just manage them, um, you know, pretty straightforward. That nuance comes because, you know, blood pressure is both a measurement and a disease. And so I can have this measurement, but the underlying disease or diseases causing that can be varied. And, you know, we classically have this primary versus secondary hypertension, secondary, secondary hypertension being this minority. There's some other disease, maybe renal, cardiovascular, or something else causing it. And those situations, it's it's easy to kind of explain to the patient, oh, there's this other complex health issue. We have to treat that. That's causing your blood pressure to be high. Um, and the more general primary hypertension, it's a little bit harder because, you know, there's this threshold of when does a risk factor become an actual disease? Certainly if it's very high, if there are other comorbidities that they have, if they've already had previous heart attacks or strokes or signs of end organ damage, you know, it's a little bit more easier to say, hey, listen, you have an established disease. We need to control this to kind of reduce your future risks. And then in that primary prevention, when there's no existing diseases, no comorbidities, 
there's just a lot of unknowns and especially in younger individuals i don't think there's a strong literature base um and so you're you're kind of extrapolating and honestly i think most of us just say okay high is probably not good let's get lower and then you know if we're discussing this in terms of non-medications if we're telling someone hey go exercise eat healthy lose weight certainly doing that and bringing your blood pressure down can only be a net positive when we start talking about other interventions such as medications it becomes harder because there are trade-offs um, and i and i don't know how often we have those conversations honestly with patients um, because i think we are all in the sense compelled to treat that number we all feel uncomfortable when it's high and we're not doing anything about it yeah so um i think we both agreed that we're in a place that that life dictates that we've got to simplify things to a certain extent and um and we can't spend ages talking philosophically with patients and there are basic rules uh, about what will make you live longer um, uh, and so we're, we're back to the question of what we're trying to do really if we isolate this measurement having done it properly several times um what how do we regard it in the totality of what we're doing for this patient how do we explain how big that effect is going to be if we use a particular drug to lower it uh, and i think that that's a question that i've really been wrestling with for about 30 years and i, I haven't come up with a clear answer to be honest i don't think anybody has um, because we keep bouncing back to the oh well let's get it down because we know from um, population data that the lower we get the general population's blood pressure down the fewer events they're going to be um, and and that's how how the whole thing started in the first place the observation that people with higher blood pressure on average uh, do worse and that's been known now for 110 years believe it or not um, so um, I think we're in danger, really, of floundering a little bit. Shall I um, go ahead and try and get you to tell me what, what stuff lowering blood pressure will help patients avoid? Would that be a good way of, of, of treating it? I think we, we could jump into that. But before we get there, I think it may be worth discussing a little bit of the history of how we got to our current conundrum, because I think... In the old days, this was a little bit easier. You just had very high blood pressure, I suspect, and you treated it. And and how did we go from the, our initial recognition of high blood pressure not being good to our current quandary where we're dealing with population health and statistics and so on? Yeah, um, okay, I'll, I'll try and whiz through that. It's um, of some interest. And here we come on to the, um, the, the, the fitness of my doing this from a spot um, about maybe 100 metres from where Harvey Cushing used to uh, operate here in Yale. Um, Harvey Cushing, you remember, was, the, was a, a phenomenal surgeon who introduced um, uh, surgery of the brain. He uh, uncovered a lot of modern endocrinology. Um, and believe it or not, he was the first person to introduce blood pressure measurement to the United States. I did not know that until I read an article two days ago 
uh, and he had been working with Europeans and they had devised this cuff um, that went around the arm and a method of measuring blood pressure by simply inflating this cuff, which was linked with a tube of mercury um, to a certain extent where you could no longer feel the radial pulse and then deflating it until you could read the, uh, the, the radial pulse. And that gave you the systolic blood pressures it still does today. Um, and that, that was the only method in, at the turn of the 20th century. In 1904, Cushing came back and he devised an even better machine for doing this. Um, and uh, then a guy, a Russian called Korotkov, dis discovered that if you were listening through your stethoscope to the brachial pulse while you were inflating this cup, um, there would be a point at which the sounds, if you squeeze it to maximum, then the, 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 you get no sound from the, the brachial pulse. Then you, um, then you would get this sound from um, through your stethoscope, which would then disappear. And that was then shown to be the point of the diastolic blood pressure. So you can measure both systolic and diastolic. And that was considered of very little interest to most doctors. Um, it appeared in a medical textbook um, where the condition where this was, that both were high was called hyperpiesis, which is a word we don't use now. But believe it or not, the insurance industry discovered that these measurements were highly predictive of death in individuals, because of course, no one was on treatment for blood pressure in those days. And it was all the uh, population data on blood pressure measurement came about because increasingly the American insurance companies insisted that everyone given life insurance had to have their blood pressure measured first and they would be weighted accordingly. There was no treatment if your blood pressure was high. Um, and Doctors were therefore very reluctant even to measure it because they had absolutely nothing to do if it happened to be high. And so for three decades or more, um, a lot of data were accumulated about the natural history of a high blood pressure. And we we're talking about really high blood pressure. You had to be um, 210 over 140 before anyone would really take very much notice of it. Um, and then after the war, the Framingham study was set up and the first drugs were put into wide use. I think the fact that um, President Roosevelt died with um, spectacularly high blood pressure helped people, helped to concentrate minds on this. Um, and so um, a series of drugs um, uh, became widely used um, and I think I'll break off at that point because um, it was only at this point really that we start the story of, of how the modern conception of blood pressure grew up. But it was basically from individual measurements which were forced on people by the insurance companies and then followed up by medicine much, much later. That's a fantastic review. Thank you, Richard. I learned a lot of new things there.
Um, and so what blood pressure treatments were there? Well, there was nitroprusside, the, the, uh, which is still used about twice a year um, across the world for what's called malignant hypertension. But, um, but there were no there were no nice treatments at all. It was it was um, only in the late 1950s when the thiazide class of diuretics was discovered that you had a treatment that was really harmless and, and um, effective. The one immediately before that is one you, you will only have heard of if you're of my age and then never used, and that's called reserpine or resipine. Um, which is a, an alkaloid, a plant alkaloid that um, uh, affects your brain and causes a lot of people to become extremely depressed and retarded. And um, at the same time, it has some central lowering blood pressure effect. And so a lot of people with uh, high blood pressure were taking this pretty awful drug that made quite a few of them suicidal. And it was said by some people that the, the main um, <clears throat> hazard of having high blood pressure was that your doctor would put you on medication for it. Um, <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then all yeah. of a sudden, um, at the end of the 50s, early 60s, the beta blockers were found, the alpha blockers followed. Um, and from then onwards, uh, we've got various um, vasodilating type drugs, calcium channel antagonists, and um, various drugs that are, um, lower the effect of the renin angiotensin system. And so we've got um, um, now almost too many drugs that we can use for blood pressure. And uh, it's a question now of trying to work out which is the best for an individual patient. And that's another minefield. So we've swiftly gone from a bog to a minefield, and um, now perhaps we'll discuss treatment of blood pressure. I would. I am curious to know one thing, which is that you know, in, in your practice, or in the 70s or even 60s, if you're familiar with that time period, how did most physicians go about deciding if someone needed to be treated for their blood pressure? I mean, nowadays we have all these nice evidence-based guidelines, if you will, but. Was there like a general understanding or a threshold or was it just left to the individual physicians based on symptoms and so on? No, um, in England, there was a, the, the, there was a, a, a great argument between two um, very opinionated medical men, uh, Sir George Pickering and uh, Lord Platt. So they were both at the high, high end of the uh, medical spectrum. Lord Platt decided that there was a disease called hypertension, which was caused by things that we didn't fully understand. Uh, kidney disease was an obvious one, but um, there, there was definitely an abnormal group and they were genetically, some of them were genetically abnormal in his view and that they uh, had a disease called hypertension. And then Sir George Pickering um, took the view that blood pressure is normally distributed in the population. There are a few conditions which cause it as a secondary phenomenon, but basically um, it's like height or weight or anything else. Um, it's partly what you're born with and partly what you end up with. And um, the two of them had an extremely rude argument 
Act, um, in which they called each other names. Um, and um, Sir George Pickering um, ended up writing a book called High Blood Pressure, 600 word book, came out in 1968. Uh, and um, that really established the basis of the population view of high blood pressure and the fact that you should not really call it a disease, but you should treat it as a risk factor in, in, a, in the context of a general review of the person's health. Now, the cholesterol was just being discovered as a, as a risk factor, smoking, obviously. And Pickering was ahead of his time in trying to take a, um, a view on all these things. And also, to emphasize, the extreme variety of um, or the variation within individuals of their blood pressure measurements through time. And his book actually had a cover in which he uh, plotted the graph of one of his junior doctors uh, throughout the day. And this was using an intra-arterial transducer. And um, so this guy wore this machine and was told to do everything that he normally did in a day. And Pickering had quite a sense of humor and picked a, a young married um, registrar of his and insisted that he went to bed with it. And about 11 o'clock, this guy's blood pressure really climbed and climbed and climbed for about 10 minutes and then slowly decayed thereafter. Um, and this, this was, he put this on the cover of his book without a comment. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> one of the best visual jokes in medicine, really. But anyway, um, I then came to know Pickering because he, he became master of the college I was at in Oxford. And I changed from medicine to English literature. And uh, after the first term I'd done that, we were we were all called up before the master to give some account of ourselves. He said, "Well, layman, did you and how are you enjoying English literature?" And I said, "Oh, very much, master." Oh, damn, he said, <laughs> because he wanted to keep me in medicine, but and he succeeded later on, and we became great pals on the basis of that. But anyway, he was a character, and I've digressed, but. So my introduction to blood pressure was when, if you were over 65, you didn't bother about it anyway, because you were, you were nearly dead anyway. And, you know, you probably needed a high blood pressure to keep your circulation going um, into, into your brain. Um, and Pickering himself died in the late 60s, and that was what was expected. And um, so the, the concentration was still on high blood pressure as, as defined by something like um, 160 over 110 would be a, a reasonable threshold. And the first choice drug in those days was often propranolol um, because it was the one with the least side effects, would you believe? Uh, and the, um, uh, <laughs> and, the, uh, and bendroflumathiazide, which is um, <clears throat> just another thiazide, um, was was thought to um, to cause people to pee too much to be usable, and then suddenly people just found out that you could use a tiny dose, 2.5 milligrams in the case of 
benzofluoride, and which hardly made any difference to your pattern of being and, and lowered your blood pressure by um, five or even ten millimeters. Um, and it was realized again that office blood pressure measurement was the only feasible way to monitor things, but it was far from ideal because it became clear that there was such a thing as white coat hypertension that you got when you came near a doctor. And some people had blood pressure that um, went down at night and others didn't, and all these subtleties began to appear. So that was, that was the situation in the 1970s when I first started in general practice. And um, in, to some extent, um, well, I think to a large extent, all this stuff has been thrown out of the window. Thanks to evidence-based medicine. So that's perhaps a great transition. Um, when evidence-based medicine came to the fore in the late 80s and early 90s, what was that transition like? You know, suddenly there's a change in practice and the way docs have been practicing for over a decade and is now suggested doing otherwise. Well, the, the problem with evidence-based medicine is it likes binary questions in a, in a in a nice um, definable population. And the only definable population you can get in um, uh, with high blood pressure is, is the people who are detected to have it. Um, and then you start them on a treatment, see what happens to them. But you can't follow them up for the, the entirety of their lives. Um, so uh, the tendency has always been to pick a high risk group anyway, and then because they're going to have mortality endpoints. Uh, and so you've got a skewed, uh, um, you've got screwed inclusion criteria, or else you've got a whole muddle of drugs, because some of these people were still taking reserpine from the, um, uh, the, the 1950s, and then um, uh, other drugs. Um, in succession. So you've got a kind of complex field. And so you start to cheat and to say, we won't look at a particular drug, we'll look at a particular degree of blood pressure lowering. And all the trials that look at lowered versus not lowered, obviously come out in favor of the lowering bit, uh, the, the lowering group. But it does leave us with um, a very complex body of evidence to do with which drugs actually make the most difference to long-term outcomes. That's actual drugs, actual drug groups. And then you've got the further complication of which patients respond best to which groups and how, how can you tell in advance or can't you? Um, so those, those are now becoming uh, in my view, the leading questions in uh, blood pressure research. Yeah, that's that's a great summary, and it it kind of gives us a sense of where we got to now, as you point out, where now we kind of have a sense of we're not just treating symptoms or severe diseases, but we're taking a more holistic population view. We're treating everyone who we think meets certain criteria, and it's kind of tailoring, you know, if we can, what treatments work best, and also filling those gaps, because as you've pointed out, a lot of the existing research are in higher risk individuals that actually have events that you can measure, and it's, it's filling the gaps for individuals that are healthier, that are lower risk, 
and ensuring that that same benefit applies to them um, and makes these trade-offs worthwhile. And it brings us back to the old question of what, a, what is an NNT? You know, yeah. How can you tell the NNT of actually, say, adding um, a, 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 an ARV to a, a blood pressure regime for uh, over, a, over a lifetime? You can't, and, and, um, and all you, so we keep coming back to big studies which are mostly about blood pressure thresholds. And then, and so they become studies of uh, threshold effects measured in different ways. And then, and so one of the big debates that's been um, actually going on for the last 40 years, but particularly in the last 10, uh, is about continuous blood pressure measurements, uh, home blood pressure measurements, um, night and day measurements, and, um, pulse and, and blood pressure variability. And all those are different factors that you have to try to factor in. But if you do try to do that mathematically, you quickly get into a mess. And so we're back to the question, the problem that we started with, which is what do you say to the patient in front of you? How do you go about measuring their blood pressure sufficiently well and then explaining sufficiently well and choosing the first drug to give them? Um, and I, I think, although that's, that was where we started and this perhaps should be where we ended because we've done about half an hour of this. And, <laughs> and I, I feel that perhaps people are beginning to weary of all these different circular paths that we've taken. No, so, this is great though. I, I think this is a great review of blood pressure in the context of its history and in the context of how it was shaped by the EBM movement. And you brought up a lot of great points, which is that as we shifted this mentality where you know, we really want to benefit people, even if that effect size and number need to treat is small, we kind of set lower threshold. You know, 140 over 90 is much less than the 160 over 100, 110. And then in, in the American Heart Association guidelines, there are some 130 over 80, and some say even tighter. And the lower you set that threshold, the more careful you have to be in your measurements because you want to make sure those measurements are correct and accurate, and you're not misdiagnosing people and over treating and so on. So it adds a lot more nuance and complexity. And then now we have so many therapeutic agents and trying to figure that out. And then most importantly, taking all that information and communicating it to the patient in front of us. So they have buy-in because if if they're not agreeable to it, we can prescribe whatever we want, but they're not going to be taking the pills. Yes, I think this is this is a good point to stop because we've now narrowed it down to the question of um, how we first of all how we measure the blood pressure to start with and then with each change of treatment and then secondly we've we've come to the point of deciding which agents to use and we've got all the guidelines telling us to do simple uh, different stepwise choices um, but they're all assuming that everyone's the same um, and we know that's not true so there are some questions to leave in our own minds and those of our listeners, uh, hoping that they may want to rejoin us perhaps for the next podcast. Thank you, Richard. Thank you.